You know, all during this meeting and, of course, at all of our assemblies and in our lives, we are to seek the truth. And that's what we're here tonight to do. We just want the truth, whatever it is, and I hope that you have that in mind as well because there's nothing more valuable than the truth and what it can do for us. You know, Solomon once wrote, buy the truth and sell it not because there's nothing that can do what the truth can do. The truth can, of course, make us free. Christ said in John 8, verse 31 and 32, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth will sanctify you. Christ said in John 17 and 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The truth will purify our souls when we obey it. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So this truth, God's Word, can do a lot for us tonight. And if we'll just love it, because so many people today do not love the truth. And folks, when we do not love the truth, God will allow us to be worked upon by error to the extent that we will believe a lie and we'll lose our souls. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10 to 12, Paul said, With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We have got to love the truth, and if we don't, we will wind up in error believing lies and lose our souls. So let's look into God's Word tonight, and if you will turn to Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19, and read there with me. The Bible says when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Last night we began a study of a history of the church. Just by way of review, I know some of you could not be with us last night, and we certainly can't go back over everything we covered, but just a bit of a review, a refresher for us to remind us what we talked about. We talked about how in this passage the Lord promised to build His church, and that's exactly what he did on the first Pentecost day following his resurrection from the dead. The gospel was preached for the first time 
And Peter's the one that preached it there in Jerusalem to thousands of Jews. They gladly received that word. They were baptized. The Lord added them that day to the church, and the church began just as the Lord promised. We noted that the church uh, prospered and flourished, that the apostles and evangelists and others took the gospel throughout all of the Roman Empire, all the great outposts of the Roman Empire, and around the Mediterranean Sea and other places, preaching the gospel, saving the lost, and of course organizing congregations of the Lord's church, not different denominations, but the same body in these different cities, and that the church flourished. Now the church had its problems. There were divisions, there was turmoil, there was immorality, there was false teachers and false doctrine. But the apostles were here on earth to make those corrections, and they did so, sometimes in person. Sometimes the evangelists made the corrections. Sometimes they wrote epistles like Romans or 1 Corinthians or other things, correcting the churches and correcting individuals and straightening them out in the ways of God and steering them back into the right paths. But you know, the apostles, Paul in particular, predicted an apostasy, a falling away, that men eventually would depart from the truth and the church would fall away and go into apostasy. And that's exactly what happened. Remember, Paul said, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So he predicted an apostasy. We talked about 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 to 4, also Acts 20, verse 28 to 31, where these predictions were made. And then we talked about some of the early departures, how the organization of the Lord's church was changed, and how all of these different offices came along, like archbishops and cardinals and the pope and others that are foreign to the scriptures, and that eventually these false doctrines came along that we discussed last night, until finally the Roman Catholic Church came into existence. And then we talked about the Dark Ages and how Catholicism ruled Europe, but eventually that Gutenberg invented the printing press and the Bible began to be mass-produced and common people like us got the Scriptures and figured out we could understand the Word of God. It was a revelation to us. And men began to see rather quickly that Catholicism was wrong and that the doctrines they had embraced were wrong. And so there was a protest against Catholicism and a reform movement. It's called the Protestant Reformation. They protested Catholicism and sought to reform it, but you cannot reform it. And so they wound up starting just simply different denominational churches. And we talked about the origin of some of these mainline denominations last night, who started them, the years that they started, and some things about them. And now since that time, we've had hundreds of different denominations come into existence. And even today, every now and then, they just pop up continually until when you go into any community, any town, any city, you literally see churches on different corners of the streets. They wear different names. They teach different doctrines. They preach a different plan of salvation. They worship in different ways. They are not in fellowship with one another. They all claim to be going to heaven. 
They all claim to be following God's Word, but they never teach anything alike. Their doctrines are completely different. One will tell you you can fall from grace, and another one says, no, you can't. One says you've got to be baptized to be saved. Another one says, no, you don't. And on and on there are differences. Some will take communion frequently. Some won't hardly take it at all. And so the names and the practices, the worship, everything about them is different until we've got this division. Now, folks, God hates division. And I don't know why people seem to be proud of the fact that we've got so many churches today and they tell us one should join the church of his choice and one's as good as another. If one's as good as another, and I don't believe those who make that statement really believe that, or they probably wouldn't go where they do. They'd go anywhere. Why don't they just disband and go somewhere else if one's as good as another? People really don't believe that slogan, but they wear it on their bumpers, bumper stickers and on windows, and they speak it. Now, God hates this division. In fact, in John 17, if you'll read with me, verses 20 and 21, Jesus, the very night before he died, prayed for his apostles and also prayed for you and me in this distant day. And after he had prayed for the apostles, in verses 20 and 21, he prayed for us. He said to his father, neither pray I for these alone, that is, these apostles alone, but for all them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, Father, as thou art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed for us to be one, just like him and his Father are one. Do you think Jesus and God the Father believe differently? Think about that for a moment. We are to be one as he and the Father are one. We're not to have divisions among us, and yet that's exactly what we have in the religious world today. And folks, many people who probably would become Christians and maybe obey the truth, look out at this divided mess that we have all around each community. And they say, if this is Christianity, I don't want any part of it. Many of them look at the different churches and they say, this is so confusing, where do I need to go to church? I remember doing that as a young man around 20 years of age. I began to look at the different churches and I thought to myself, who's right here? Why can't they get along? How come they can't sit down and break bread together? Why do they teach different things? Why do they speak ill of one another? And it's rather confusing, isn't it? It sure was to me until I made an investigation to try to get to the truth of things. And God hates this sad situation, and Jesus prayed for unity, and I I think that you and I need to do all we can to make that prayer answered. We do not need to be found creating division and working against what the Lord prayed for. Now in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 to 13, Paul spoke about divisions and he besought people not to be divided. I want to read this with you and spend a little time on this passage. Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's analyze, beginning there at verse 10, this situation. Notice Paul scolded them about their divisions. He besought them that they all speak the same thing. Is that what we see in the religious world today? And that they have no divisions among them? He said, be joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he said, I've been hearing about contentions or divisions among you. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. Others, I'm of Apollos. Some, I'm of Cephas. And others, I'm of Christ. So you had Paulites, Apollosites, Cephasites and Christians. What a division. And then Paul asked them three important questions I want you to notice. He said, is Christ divided? And the answer is no. And his point is, if Christ is not divided, why are you? Was Paul crucified for you? Then why were they saying I'm a Paul? See his point? Why wear Paul's name? He didn't die for anybody. Then he said, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer, no. Then why say I'm a Paul? It grieved Paul that men would take his name and denominate themselves and say, I'm a Paul. Years ago in this country, there was a man by the name of Menno Simmons. He founded a church. We know it today as the Mennonites. What if we chose that name to wear? You know, Paul didn't even want people wearing his name. What if I said, I am of Menno? Would that divide Christ? Was Menno crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Menno? Well, I'd be a Mennonite. My name is Manon. What if I start a church? We could have Mennonites. Would that divide Christ? Was Manon crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Manon? See, that just brings division when we wear these human names and denominate ourselves, and that's what people do. And Paul did not want people wearing his name. It's divisive. Paul was not crucified for anyone, nor were they baptized in his name. So we have a religious mess today in this country. Now, right after all the formation of a lot of these mainline denominations, there occurred in this country a great movement to restore New Testament Christianity. Men could open their New Testaments and they read about the Lord's church that was established on Pentecost Day. And in the New Testament, there were marks of identity. And their New Testament told them about how it was organized, the offices that were in each local congregation, and what the name of the church should be, and the name of its members, and its rule of faith, and the acts of public worship and such things. And men around this country were reading their Bibles, and they were from various denominational churches. But they could see that these names were divisive. And it should not be. And they could see that the doctrines were different. And many of them were not true to the New Testament. 
And so they begin to cry out for unity and to get back to the New Testament, to get back beyond denominational churches and denominationalism, back behind Roman Catholicism, and get all the way back to the church of the first century. And they coined a phrase, which I think is very valid, let us speak where the Bible speaks, and be silent where the Bible is silent. And they taught that nothing ought to be added into the worship and work of the church and its organization that cannot be found in the New Testament scriptures. If the New Testament is silent on something, leave it off. But where the New Testament speaks, we ought to speak. And their attempt was to get back to New Testament Christianity. I'm going to give you some names of some of these men, but their names really doesn't matter. But just so our young people will have a, an idea of those that were calling and making this plea, a fellow named James O'Kelly was a Methodist, lived in Virginia, began to preach this very thing and call for, for a return to the New Testament. That was in Virginia in 1794. Abner Jones was a Baptist up in Vermont in 1801, began to make the same plea. Now these men didn't know each other. They were discovering that we've got to get back to the Bible and stop this division and stand upon it. A man named Elias Smith was a Baptist from New England. 1801 began the same plea in that area. Barton W. Stone was a Presbyterian from Kentucky preaching the same thing in 1804 and the years following. A man named Thomas Campbell who was a Presbyterian that had come over to America from Scotland began crying out, in the state of Pennsylvania for a return to the Bible, 1807. And then his son Alexander joined him in 1809, preaching the same thing. Another fellow by the name of Walter Scott, a Presbyterian out on the Western Reserve, which was in those days Ohio and parts of Pennsylvania and Kentucky, in around 18 and 19 began to proclaim the same things. Let's get back to the Bible. Let's speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. They didn't know each other, but they ran across each other in their preaching work and in their travels, and eventually were able to work together because they were like-minded in just getting back and restoring the first century church in their day. They did not want to start a new denomination. They wanted to go back and be a part of the Lord's church that we read about in the New Testament. So do I. I will tell you tonight, I don't have time, money, or energy to put into any organization that I can't read about in Scripture. I want to be in the church that Jesus built and in no other. I don't want to be in something that man has started because that does not please God. It is division. And if the Lord's church is in existence, then we ought to be in it. Have you ever thought about this question? If Jesus Christ came to Mustang, Yukon area this Sunday, where would he go to church, folks? You ever thought about that? Where would he go to church? He's going to make somebody mad. A lot of people mad. If he don't congregate where they, where would he go to church? Where's his church? That's an interesting question. I throw that out simply for you to think about a little bit. Where would Jesus go to church today? 
Now we want to restore New Testament Christianity. That's what these men had in mind, and you know that is very possible. And tonight I want to show you how we can be a part of the same church that Peter and John and Paul were. The very church that started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Lord died and rose from the dead. And there's a way we can do that, and I want to make a very simple illustration for you. We play a game here in America that we call baseball. It's called America's Favorite Pastime. There's probably a lot of people in the ballparks across America tonight. We play Major League Baseball. And you know, we play it the same in all of our major cities. You can go to New York or Philadelphia. You can go down into Florida. You can go to Houston or Dallas. You can go to St. Louis, Kansas City. You can go to Los Angeles. You can go all around the country and they play Major League Baseball and they play it by the same rule. It's the same game in every city. They play by the same rules every game because they've got a rule book that guides them. Now, that rule book, that baseball rule book, tells them that there's nine innings in a game. That nine men are on the field on each team. That three strikes is an out and four balls is a walk and there are three outs per team per inning and of course the bases are set a certain distance from each other. The rule book calls for that. The mound is a certain distance from the plate. And there are all kinds of other different rules. And when those rules are followed, you play Major League Baseball. And millions of Americans love the game. That's fine. But I want you to suppose now that here in 2009, we have a player strike. And all of a sudden, we quit playing baseball. That's happened to us in the past. But I want you to suppose that this strike continues a long time. And suppose for the next 2,000 years the world stands, but nobody plays Major League Baseball. You can't find it anywhere. It's not in any major city. It's never been played since 2009. Now it's 4,009. And somebody digs down in the rubble of our generation and they find a baseball rule book. And they read it and they study it, and they look at the rules. And they say, you know, this game looks fun. Let's play this game. So they take the rule book and they lay the diamond off and set the bases just the distance that the rule book says. And they put the pitcher's mound just that distance from home plate as the rule book says, not a foot or two closer or further away. And then they put in nine innings in a game and nine players on the field on each team and three strikes is an out, four balls is a walk, three outs per team per inning. And they bring in all the other rules. Now let me ask you something. If nobody had played baseball for 2,000 years and now it's 4,009, would this be the same game over here on this side as back in 2009? You say, well, I believe it would be if they're following the rule book. That's exactly right. What they've done is restore the game of Major League Baseball just by following the rule book. And I believe they could do that. And I believe they could set it up in any city they wanted to around the world or in any community and play the game exactly like we play it today. And it would be the very same game. Now we can understand, I believe, that illustration. The same thing is true of the Lord's church. 
The Lord's church existed in the first century. We read about it in the scripture. And back then they had a rule book and we still have it. It's called the New Testament. And this New Testament gives a description of that church. It tells us how to become a member of it. It tells us how to be organized locally in our congregations. What name we ought to wear and the name of our members and the rule of faith and some things about our worship. Can we not then tonight get back over here in, in the 21st century, can we not go back of denominationalism and all this division tonight, go back of Roman Catholicism like these men I mentioned were talking about, go all the way back to the time of the first century and set the Lord's church up today and organize it in any community in this nation or around the world. We absolutely can if we follow the rule book. It's that simple. You can start the Lord's church in any community. And we can have it right here in Mustang and Yukon. I want to do that tonight. Let's set up a congregation. Let's organize the Lord's church tonight, right here. The first thing we'd need to do is to restore the plan of salvation and how one becomes a member of that church. How do you get into the Lord's church? I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm talking about the one on Pentecost Day. Let's go back to Pentecost Day. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Let's go to the rule book. Turn there with me, Acts 2. I have verse 36. If you don't mind for a minute, would you back up to verse 22? I want to talk a little bit there. Jews have come into Jerusalem from all around the world, thousands of them. They're keeping the Feast of Pentecost. The Jews had three major feast day days during the year. Pentecost was one of them. Now these thousands of Jews are there in the city. What a great time for God to send the gospel forth for the first time, and he did. And Peter is the preacher. In verse 22, he stands up there in Jerusalem, 50 days after our Lord died and rose again. You men of Israel, he said, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He has preached the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, hadn't he? Now drop down to verse 36. As he concludes his sermon, he said this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then in verse 37, notice, the Bible says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They believed him. They were convicted. They said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They want to be saved. Now remember, the Holy Ghost has fallen upon Peter. He is an inspired man this day. He is infallible in whatever he says. And he's about to give the answer in verse 38 on how to be saved. A lot of people don't like it, but it comes right out of heaven, folks. Amen. And it was given that day by the Holy Spirit and put into Peter's lips. And he spoke these words. Men and brethren, they asked, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's us today. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people that day received Peter's message, believed it, repented, and were baptized. God saved them. Then what did he do with them? Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Every day when someone was saved, the Lord added them to the church. Now let me ask you a question. What church did he add them to? Were they Catholic? Were they Lutheran? Were they Episcopal? Were they Presbyterian? Did he add them to the Baptist church or the Methodist church or any other denomination? Not being unkind to these groups, what church did he add them to? There wasn't but one. The Lord added to the church, his church, the one he said, I will build my church. This is the start of it. They were undenominational. They were just simply Christians. And the Lord wrote their name in the book of life. He added them to the church. Nobody voted on them. They didn't have to vote on them. They heard the gospel of Christ. They believed in Jesus. They turned from their sins in repentance. And having confessed their faith in Him, they obeyed the Lord in baptism. They were immersed for the forgiveness of their sins, and God saved them, wrote their name in the book of life. He added them to the church. And that's how you get in the Lord's church. That plain and simple way that's taught here in Acts 2. That's how 3,000 got in the first time that the gospel was preached. Why couldn't I get in that way, and why couldn't you? Why, if we took this gospel across America and people heard this message and they obeyed it, why wouldn't it make them what it made these 3,000? Why would it put them in any denomination? It wouldn't make them Catholic or Protestant. It'd make them a Christian and simply a member of the Lord's church. See how simple God makes things? It's this division that man's come along and started that makes it complicated. All right? Now, I want you to let your, your imagination flow just a minute. Let's suppose all of us were back in the first century right now, and we're sitting in a religious meeting, and none of us are Christians, and we've been discussing things, and we're having a religious gathering. The Apostle Peter walks through the doors. He looks us over a little bit. He says, uh, folks, if you don't mind, I'd like to say something in this gathering. And we say, well, Sir, if you've got something to say to us, go ahead. So he comes up here where I'm at, and I take a seat, and Peter begins to preach to us. He tells about Jesus of Nazareth and how he was crucified and how he rose from the dead the third day and how he ascended back to God the Father and sets it at his right hand and that he's Lord and Christ, that he's coming back someday to judge the world and that we need to believe in this Jesus because he shed his blood and we can have remission of sins by that blood. And that if we will believe this gospel he's preaching, that we can be forgiven. And so we cry out to Peter as they did there in Acts 2. 
Peter, what shall we do? What do you think he'd tell us tonight? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now suppose, as these 3,000 did, we gladly received that word tonight, and all of us believed in the Lord, we repented, and we were baptized for remission of sins. What would God do? He would save us and add us to His church. Isn't that simple? Now what denomination would we be a member of? Absolutely none. We'd be in Christ's church. That's how it started. That's what it is. It's the called out. Those that have been called out of the world and out of sin by the gospel and have obeyed it and been forgiven, when God saves a man, He immediately adds him to the church. You don't have to join it. The thing you do in becoming a Christian and being saved is what puts you in Christ's church. That's what it did for these 3,000. It's really that simple. So the first thing we'd want to do if we were going to set up a congregation of the Lord's church here in this area is preach this simple gospel in Acts 2 and when people obeyed that it would make them members of Christ's church. God would save us and add us to it. Now, let's suppose we want to organize ourselves into a New Testament congregation. We do not want to be a denomination. We want to be just like the church that we read about in the New Testament. How would it be organized? What would we have here? All of us have now obeyed our Lord in baptism. We're saved and we're members of His church. How would we organize a local congregation? Well, let's go back to the rule book, to the Scriptures. Philippians 1 and verse 1, we learn that every local congregation of the Lord's church, when it's fully organized, has a plurality of bishops that are also called elders as well as deacons. In Philippians 1 and 1, the Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, notice, with the bishops, plural, and deacons. Philippi had a plurality of bishops and deacons, didn't they? These bishops are the same as elders. Did you notice he never wrote to the pastor? He never wrote to the Sunday school superintendent. He never wrote to the pulpit minister. He never wrote to the preacher. He wrote to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, the Christians, with the bishops and deacons. There's the simple organization of the church. A plurality of elders and deacons in every congregation. Now, if you will, look in Acts 14 because you'll see the apostles doing that everywhere when they preach the gospel and organize the people into congregations. In Acts 14, verse 21 to 23, we have a record of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. The Bible says in verse 21 that when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. They went back through all these cities where they had converted people, where God had saved them and added them to the church. Now they're organizing them. And they ordain elders in every church, a plurality of them. What's an elder? Well, Peter was an elder as well as an apostle. 
Let's let him tell us in 1 Peter 5, verse 1 to 3, what these men do. They're really the shepherds of the flock. The early church never had a one-man pastor system. It had a plurality of pastors. All a pastor is is an elder or bishop. These, these terms are used interchangeably. Overseers, bishops, elders, pastors, shepherds, all refer to the same office in Scripture. So Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, or, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. The elders then have the oversight of the congregation. And we're told to remember them that have the rule over us, who've spoken unto us the word of God, Hebrews 13. We're to submit ourselves, for they watch for our souls. Again, Hebrews 13, verses 7 and verse 17. Don't have time to read them. The qualifications for these elders or bishops are given in two places in the New Testament. I don't have time to read them either. Here they are. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. So what we would do then, out of this group, we would look out among us men that fit these qualifications that are given here in 1 Timothy 3. And we would set them aside and ordain them to this office, and they would become the bishops or the elders the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers of this congregation as we organized ourselves. And then we find that the qualifications of deacons are given in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Don't have time to read them either. You can read them, and many of you have. And so we would pick out men that could serve the church and meet these qualifications and ordain them and set them in as elders and deacons. Now we've got the local congregation here organized. Now we've got men that have authority for oversight, who can teach us, and who can run the affairs of the church and rule well and wisely and guide our lives and oversee and shepherd us in our service unto God. The next thing that we might want to do is restore the name of the church. What are we going to call ourselves? Mannonites? No, let's hope not. That divides Christ. Why not go to the rule book? Romans 16 and verse 16. Paul said, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Who does the church belong to, folks? Christ then why would I want to name it after a man or after a doctrine or after a system of government or just pick out some name that sounds good? Why not just go back to the rule book? If we're going to restore the church, let's go get the name of it. The churches of Christ salute you, Paul said. All right, so we would call ourselves a congregation of the church of Christ. That shows we belong to Christ. Somebody says, well, maybe there's just too much in these, this name. You know, after all, there's, there's nothing in a name, really. You know, I don't find too many people that 
name their children Judas or their daughters Jezebel. There may be a few. There's a lot in a name. I remember reading a story, a true story that happened years ago over in Pulaski, West Virginia. Churches used to have back in those days what was called union meetings. All these denominations in a town would get together and have a big revival. They called it a union meeting except nobody preached on their differences. That was all taboo. You didn't mention those. You just preached on what they had in common and that wasn't very much. And then when they made a convert, however they decided to convert them, well then they fought over it. Who was going to get the family or the person? So they were having a union meeting there one night and a woman named Mrs. Tobman attended that meeting and she was a New Testament Christian. One that obeyed the gospel like we read about in Acts 2 and strived to get back to the New Testament. She knew what the scripture said. She heard this preacher get up one night and he said there's nothing in a name. One name's good as another. So he was standing at the back after the sermon shaking hands with people as they came out and Miss Tobman was a wealthy woman. And so as she comes by this preacher, she said, I'd like for you to come out to my house in the morning. I'd like to give you a check. Now, if you want to get a preacher to visit you early in the morning, offer him a check. This guy was over there the next morning. She had a check. She handed the man a check for $1,000. A lot of money in the 1800s. A lot of money now. He thanked her politely. He headed down to the bank handed the check to the teller. He said, I'd like to cash this, this check from Miss Tobman. The teller looked at it. He said, well, I can't cash it. Well, he said, why not? I know she's good for the money. He said, well, she's good for the money, all right, but that's not her name on the check. He looked at it. It wasn't her name. So he went back to see Mrs. Tobman. He said, I, I appreciate the check you gave me, and I, I went down to cash it at the bank, and they wouldn't do that. Your name's not on here. That's some other name there. She said, I know it is. It's my maid's. I signed her name on there. You said last night one name is as good as another. Go cash it. And she made her point to this preacher. One name's not as good as another. Or Paul wouldn't have said and scolded people for saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. He wanted people of Christ. And if Jesus Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body, folks, we ought to wear his name. Why do I want to be called anything but a member of the church of Christ? That's Christ's church. It's that simple, and that's the rule book. All right, now... What do we call ourselves then as members? We're organizing this group here in Mustang. What do we call the members? Well, what does the rule book say? Well, let's look at it. We read here in the, in the New Testament again, as we go back to those rules, the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Barnabas has been working down at Antioch, and he needs Paul with him, or Saul, the Bible says in verse 25, then departed, uh, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now let me ask you something. What kind of Christians were these? 
Were these Baptist Christians or Methodist Christians or Catholic Christians? What kind of Christians were these? They were just Christians. They were undenominational. They didn't wear human names. The disciples were not called Mennonites first in Antioch. They were called Christians. See what I'm saying, folks? And I'm not trying to be unkind to that group. Wear the name Christian. So the Bible tells us then what name we ought to wear. Just refer to ourselves as Christians. That name's found two or three other places in Scripture. Don't have time to, to cite those places. Now we've got how to get into the church. We know the organization is a plurality of elders and deacons. Now we know the name. It's the Church of Christ. Now we know that we ourselves are to be Christians. Now what kind of rule of faith shall we follow? Shall we write our own rule book? Shall we write a manual or a discipline or a creed that tells what we believe, where we can hand that out to people? I was preaching one night in northwest Arkansas and was standing at the back after service, and this man came by me. And he said, I wonder, do you have a book that tells what all you believe and, and what you folks believe in practice? I said, I sure do. Well, he said, I'd like to have one of them, and I handed him my New Testament. I don't have a rule book other than this. Don't need one. But I read in Philippians 3 and verse 16, a statement from Paul, where he said, Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us mind the same things. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same things. You can't have unity if you don't follow the same rule. And that's the problem in religion today. Some churches have their own manual. Some have their own creed. Some have their own catechism. And these religious books are different, and they follow those books because it has their doctrine. And if I pick up one of their books, and then I get a book from another one, those books are not going to agree. No wonder we can't get along. Now, why do we need creed books in religion? Why do we need church manuals and catechisms and such things and disciplines? We don't. We've got the New Testament. We've got the Scriptures right here. Remember, we're, we're restoring the church. Here's the rule of faith. This is where we've been getting the organization and the name and this description out of. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you believe these creeds and church manuals were given by inspiration of God? And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. The Scriptures then furnish everything. They are infallible and inspired. They are profitable for our doctrine. If we need doctrine, here it is. Reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. It's all right here. Listen, if we were to write a creed book tonight and it contained less than the New Testament, it contains too little. If we wrote one and it contained more than the New Testament, that's too much. If we won't wrote one that's just like the New Testament, we don't need it because we've already got it. We don't need anything but this book. And if everybody will get back to this book, we'll have unity. We really will.
and speak where it speaks and be silent where it's silent. That's what we'd want to try to do, all right? Now, we've got the rule of faith now. What about our public worship when we gather like we have tonight? Let's go back to the rule book. Go to John 4, verse 23 and 24. John 4, verse 23 and 24. Jesus talking to a woman here in Samaria at Jacob's well. They've been in a, well, she's been arguing with Christ. He's not arguing. He's just straightening her out on things. He tells her in verse 23, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus talked about true worshipers. And he says that they worship in spirit and in truth. Now what does it mean to worship in spirit? It means to worship from the heart. From the heart. And what does it mean to worship in truth? It means to worship according to the word of God. When you worship in spirit, you worship from the heart. When you worship in truth, you worship according to the word of God. And that's the only thing God will accept. Matthew 15, verse 8. Jesus talked also about vain worship as well as true worship. Matthew 15, 8. He said this of the Jews. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now look at the difference here between true worship and vain worship. Christ said that the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. In spirit, from the heart, in truth, He will do everything in His worship that's found in the Word of God that He wants. And He will not substitute anything. And He'll give it to God from the heart. That's true worship. But the Jew offered vain worship, and Christ said, They draw nigh unto me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, Where's their heart? He said, the heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines. Where'd they get their doctrines? The commandments of men. Anytime we don't worship God from the heart or anytime what we do in our worship is not found in the New Testament, it is in vain. So when it comes to public worship then in our assemblies, God's very particular. You know, God's always been particular how He's worshipped. Go back to Genesis 4. Don't have time to read it. Cain and Abel. God accepted Abel and rejected Cain. Cain offered of the fruit of the ground. Abel offered the firstling of his flock and the fat thereof. The Bible says the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Cain wouldn't give him what he asked for. Abel did. I read in Leviticus 10 about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, that took their censers and they put incense on them and they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. God killed them right there. Don't come before God's presence in worship trying to give him what you've made up. Go to the scripture and find out what he wants and then give it from your heart and then he'll take it. And that's what we would do in our public worship, all right? Let's look at some worship then in the New Testament. It's got to be in spirit and truth. 
We find in the New Testament that when the saints gathered in the early church, they sang like we have here tonight. The scriptures are abundant on that subject. I'll read a couple. Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 19. The Bible says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Where's the melody made? Not on an organ or a piano or an instrument. Sing and make melody in the heart. You'll never find instrumental music in the New Testament. You'll find it in the Old. It's never mentioned in the New. You'll never find it. If we're going to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where it's silent, we will sing. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I hope we've done that here tonight. Singing. That would be one act of public worship. Secondly, God wants us to offer prayers according to this rule book. So we would set that in as we restore the church. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so when the early church gathered, they prayed. They had prayers. All right, just restore that and set it into practice. When the early church gathered, if we're going to restore its worship, they had teaching when they came together. And that's mentioned many, many places in this rule book or in this New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14 and 26. Paul said, How is it then, brethren, when you come together? Every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. God wants the church edified or built up, and so when we gather, He wants it taught. But you know what? He's got rules when it's taught, and if we're going to restore the church and conduct our assemblies like He wants them, we'll look at the rules. And there are some rules about teaching, some things that we need to notice. And if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. When I grew up as a boy, folks, we had a woman for a pastor. My mother died when I was nine. A woman preached her funeral. When I went to Sunday school class as a boy, women taught me. That's not what God wants, and that's not what happened in the first century church. Now, God loves women, but that's not what He wants done in the assemblies. Let's read it. The teaching in the first century church was done by men only, speaking one at a time, with women silent. Here it is. Verse 29, let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? 
If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, listen, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. I didn't say this, Jesus did. Paul said, what I'm writing to you is the commandments of the Lord. Now that woman pastor I had never read this passage. I didn't even know it was in the Bible. That's my fault, I didn't read it. Millions of people don't know what's in there yet. So we would set up the teaching then with men only speaking one by one and women silent. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, same thing. The Bible says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. There's the reason. This goes all the way back to creation. A woman's got a wonderful role in our lives, but not in the assemblies. And outside the assemblies, a woman can teach a man, woman, or child. It won't make any difference. But in the assemblies of God's people, no. So we would set up our teaching in that fashion. Also, we would remain in an undivided assembly. The early church gathered in a together arrangement. I challenge you in the New Testament to find a Sunday school or Bible class system anywhere in Scripture. You'll never find the elders calling a congregation for teaching and dividing them into groups and classes. In Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, the Bible says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, how together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Neither did the early church folks have a one-man pastor or preacher system. It had multiple teachers in every congregation. And that's a pattern in the New Testament. And I want to look at some scripture along that line. Acts 13 and 1, we have the example of the church in Antioch. The Bible says, Now there was in the church, were in the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. All of those are named at Antioch. I don't have it on there. Look at Acts 15, 35. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Antioch had all kinds of speakers. So should we. Corinth had that in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 31. Paul said, You may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. What would our teaching look like then when we gathered, just like tonight? We would come together in a together arrangement, the men speaking one by one with the women silent, an undivided assembly where all can learn and be comforted, where everybody can judge what's taught, where you know what your children are being fed, and you can examine it and see if it's right where you don't send them down the hallway with Sister Jones and wonder what she's teaching them. But you can have them here on the pew with you and know what they're getting. And that's important that we check every speaker. 
And so the early church then had a very simple way of teaching when it gathered. Now, the early church took the Lord's Supper. When? Because we would want to organize that as well. When do we break bread? Acts 20 and verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Every Sunday, every first day of the week, and every week has a first day, the disciples came together to break bread. All right, every Sunday we'd have the Lord's Supper. That's what the Lord wants, evidently. That's what the early church did. That's the example in Acts 20 and 7. Some people say, well, we're going to have it once a month, or we'll have it once every quarter, or we'll take it once a year. Well, where's the scripture for that? But we do have this example upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread every week as a first day. Finally, the early church, if we restore the worship and such things in the assembly, they took a collection on Sunday. You know, it's funny how a lot of churches know to pass the plate on the first day of the week, but not the communion. But listen to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as the Lord gave order, or as I gave order unto the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God had prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Did you notice we never shoved the collection plate in front of you tonight? We didn't invite you here to take your money. We invited everybody to come tonight to give them a free study and free worship of God. We'll pass the plate here on Sunday morning and that's the only time it'll go around. It'll never go around any other time. And everybody will give all they intend to then. But we're not going to invite the public out and then shove a collection plate in front of them. They might not want to pay for what they just heard. So we'll give them a free gospel and our love. You see, we can take the Bible, and this is the point I want you to see tonight, and I'm glad you're here. We can take the same New Testament that they had in the first century and just follow it today and we can set the church up today exactly like it was back then. And when you do that, what you've done is restore New Testament Christianity and the New Testament church and you can do it in any city, town, or community anywhere in the world. You can go to China and do this. You can go to India and do it. You can go to Australia and do it. And you can go to Mustang, Oklahoma and do it. Just follow the rule book. Now, we believe tonight that here at this place we have the Lord's church. Why? Because we're following the rule book. But I want to tell you this, we don't think we're better than a lot of other people either. We do not believe that we necessarily live a better life than other religious people do. We're not arrogant about that. Do we have hypocrites among us? Absolutely. Do we have people that commit immoral acts from time to time? We do. So did the early church. And we have a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to go to church with these hypocrites. Well, that's fine. Hypocrites are going to hell. And if you don't want to sit on a pew with one of them, you can go to hell with them. We're going to be with them one place or the other. God will take care of them. 
So we're, we're just trying to be tonight, and my message is New Testament Christians. In all of our weaknesses, we just want whatever the Bible teaches, whatever the New Testament says, to speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where it's silent. That's our plea. That's what the Church of Christ here is all about. And we plead for everybody for unity and for unity based upon the teaching of the Scripture. If you like this appeal tonight, and frankly, it's the only thing that's ever made sense to me in religion. If I can't get back and find the Lord's church and be that exactly, I'm not interested. Tonight, if you'd like to be a part of Christ's church, the church of Christ, the church that he built, all you've got to do is obey Acts 2. We read it at the beginning. If you believe in Jesus and you'll repent and you'll come confess that faith and you'll be baptized for the remission of sins, God will save you tonight and he will add you to the same church that Peter and them were in on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Meet with us and work with us in our effort to unite on the Bible and just speak where it speaks and be silent where the New Testament silent. We offer an invitation tonight if there be one here that wants to be just a undenominational, just a New Testament Christian, a member of the Lord's Church.